it's a bit disconcerting because the first thing I look at is this great big pillar, but pretend everybody that I am addressing each and every one of you individually. Um, good morning, assalamu alaikum. My name is Bettina Chua Abdullah, and uh, together with my partner at Hikayat, Gareth Richards, we are delighted to welcome all of you to what is the first event of the Georgetown Literary Festival. We actually stood here, not in Black Kettle, but over at UAB one year ago, presenting the very first Hikayat annual lecture for literary translation. Translation is something that we at Hikayat are incredibly committed to, and it was our great pride to be then the event that kicked off the festival. That translation was deftly and absolutely delightfully helmed by the wonderful Arshia Sata. I know some of you who are here today were there then. Uh, Arshia Sata, of course, the doyen of uh, translation of the Ramayana. And since then, Hikayat has hosted the Commonwealth Writers Symposium, welcoming 20 over writers and translators, as well as publishers from Southeast Asia and South Asia. And their work over the several days that they were with us at Hikayat in our Hikayat Blue Room uh, points to this growing interest uh, and devotion to the field of translation. That took place in March, and I did a little bit of research. I didn't know it at the time, but the point of what they were saying, the many things that they discussed, that point was driven home, sure as a nail that was been struck on its head, when just a few weeks later, Indonesian publishers sold translation rights to 23 of their titles at the London Book Fair. I couldn't find an equivalent for Malaysian publishers, but hopefully, that might change, because we at Hikayat remain dedicated to supporting the work of translations, translators. Translation is key to shaping a reader's understanding of the world and its history, its philosophy, and its politics. Today, we all feel very much that our planet is one of fracture and schism, and if translation offers a means of repairing this, then we should celebrate and translate and, and support it. Our very first publication proved that translation is not an endeavor to be assumed lightly. It was titled The Girl in the Window, Finding Oneself in an Other. It's Arsha Sattar's seriously honest account of what it takes to capture meaning, emotion, cultural context, and the very soul of a classic tale that is 2,500 years old. When working with texts that are not only fable, but part of the very cultural consciousness of India, Southeast Asia, and beyond, the challenges are huge. Harry Averling has risen to these challenges over the past 50 years. So picking up where Arsha Sattar left off, he will lead us through his formula for approaching and understanding the source text, feeling its shape, tracing its contours, listening to the lilt, catching the cadence, ingesting the inflections. What is the message of the text? And how does the translator give its shape in its new voice? How indeed? should this story be heard. To introduce Harry Aveling, 
I'd like to invite Gareth Richards. Thank you very much, Bettina, for that uh, wonderful introduction to uh, the work that we're trying to do at uh, Hikayat with regard to literary translation. It's an enormous pleasure, honestly, to be able to introduce today's Hikayat lecturer, Harry Aveling, to you. I want to begin slightly oddly. Uh, they say you should never reveal the date of birth of certain seniors, but I'm going to do so in this case. Because I discovered yesterday Harry was born in the month of March 1942. And why do I mention this? Because he dropped into our conversation the fact that he was born merely four days apart from another very esteemed translator who's sitting in the room today, Mohammed Haji Saleh. So March 1942 is obviously the part of the Annus Mirabilis for translators from our region. I think it's entirely appropriate that they call each other's brothers from other mothers. I've corresponded with Harry over the last seven or eight years. In fact, uh, as an editor, I was very honored to uh, edit a really interesting piece that he wrote for a collection that was published on alternative global discourses in 2012. And you, knowing Harry's portfolio of work over the last 50 years, would be very hard-pressed to identify what that piece was about. Was it about Indonesian literature or Malay literature, for which he's very well known? Was it about 18th century Hindi devotional poetry, for which he's also well known? Not at all. It was a very fine analysis of contemporary Aboriginal poetry from Australia. And I think that just illustrates the breadth and the scope and the depth of the man. As Bettina mentioned in her introduction, over the last five decades, Harry Aveling has translated extensively from the Indonesian, from the Malay. He's put his fingerprints on the works of such luminaries as Pramudya Nantatur, Rendra. In fact, it was his translations from Rendra, some of his earliest published work, that I first came across Harry's name. A. Samad Said, Ishak Haji Muhammad, and Shannon Ahmed, just to name half a dozen of the authors whose works he has brought across the language divide and into English. Uh, in addition to the Hindu, Hindi devotional poetry that I mentioned just now, he's also fairly recently published uh, or translated a collection of Vietnamese uh, folk tales and a novel by the Francophone Vietnamese writer Pam Du Kim. On Saturday at Hikayat, we'll be launching Harry Aveling's most recent publication. Uh, he was very keen that the publication came out from a Malaysian publisher, and so Penebit UKM, UKM Press, 
uh, has published, and we will launch on Saturday Harry's latest book, which appropriately is titled Perceptions, Essays on Translation and Literature of the Malay World. And with those few words of welcome and uh, greeting, please give a very warm Georgetown Literary Festival welcome to Harry Aveling. Good morning, everybody. It's an honor to be here. I thank Gareth, Bettina. Thank you for coming all this way at 11 o'clock in the morning. Avignamastu. Classical Hindu-Javanese texts begin. May there be no hindrance, no obstruction. May all be peaceful. Title of my talk, the translated, gives it visible form, comes from an old Javanese text, Patayana, the journey of Pata. The supreme truth that flows from flawless, flawless aesthetic experience is brought to fulfillment by the existence of the poet. Absorbed in meditation, he finds harmony in the innermost part of the mind through unity with the rapturous beauty of the lotus of non-duality and gives it visible form. The translator, this is what I'm wanting to say, does something similar. Looks for flawless aesthetic experience, meditates, <laughs> thinks, cogitates on the whole process, tries to find some sort of unity and then gives a text visible form. Literatures other than one we can read, that we're familiar with, exist because we can read them in translation. The work of the poet and the translator is difficult. I want to emphasize, highly aesthetic, but it produces a physical object, a new manifestation. I want to talk about the complexity of translation today. I want to spend a bit of time talking about how I, how we translate. Other translators will have different approaches, different understandings. We can talk about that. And I want to talk about some examples of what I call units, very specific ways of just beginning the translation. So let's look at some definitions of translation. Translation is easy. It's not a definition at all. All you do is change the words. You take the words in Malay and you put new words in English. Yeah, does it work like that? You take the words in English and you put new words in Tamil, and that's a translation. You just replace the words in one language with words in another language. And for some people, that's the way it's done. Going right back to St. Jerome in the third century, I render word for word, because in the sacred scriptures, everything is a mystery. So I just put it down the way it comes. And I think we know that this doesn't work. 
We just can't replace words for words. There are not the same words in two languages anyway. A house in Malay is different from a house in English. Dear, the pronoun, what does it mean? He, she, it, doesn't mean anything till it has a context. But it's not the same. A dog in Malay is very different from the Englishman's dog, which is his best friend. In Malay, it's not at all a pleasant animal. You want to keep away from dogs. So meanings are arbitrary, and they're defined different ways in different cultures. There's a problem there. So there have been some definitions of translation. Translation is a craft, this writer says. It's not a science, do this and this and this, and a perfect translation will come out the other end. It's not really an art. It's creative, but you don't start from nothing. Craft, you begin with something that's there. Clay, cotton, photograph, whatever. And you work it into something new. Craft consisting in the attempt. I love that word, the attempt. To replace a written message and or a statement in one language with the same message or statement in another language. So what this author is interested in are messages. Translations are not about words, they're about message. So we start off, let there be no hindrance. We could replace it, let there be no obstruction. Let there be no difficulty. More positively, let us all cooperate so we can get through this together. It's a blessing. So we're changing the message. The other definition is even more complicated. Translation consists in reproducing in the second language the closest natural equivalent. So again, it's not the same. People look for the same in the translation as was in the original. And we have to say that it's not going to be the same in any meaningful way. The new text has different language. It has a different cultural take on the world. It has a different aesthetics, which is very important. When we read a Malay text in English, we're reading it against other English texts. We don't know the background anymore. We don't know the author. So we have to judge it on our own terms. And the text should be natural. So it has to be comprehensible. It has to be assimilatable. Style down the end. Matters of meaning and in terms of style. So we have to work on the style as well as the meaning. There's another, even more radical definition. 
by a lady called Margaret Annam. Translation takes place when a source text of oral or written nature has for a particular purpose. I think literary translators translate consciously or unconsciously for a particular purpose. We don't just do it, but we do it for an audience. And there are very many different audiences for translation. The next slide. We may speak of translation when a source text of written has been used for a particular purpose, has been a model. So the purpose of translation, this is why we get into trouble as translators, because people have different expectations of what the translation is going to be like and what it's going to be about. So if we have the next one. We have academic translations with footnotes, with appendices, with introductions, with lots of knowledge telling you in the original language, this is what it was about. In the original culture, this was what it was about. The aesthetics were like this. So we can translate for academic purposes. We can also translate to produce something that's very close in our language that we're translating into, but is accessible. So we'll look at Pantun in a minute. And Pantun is four lines. So you decide I'm going to make it four line verse form. It looks like the original in some ways. It can be a free translation. You take the essence of what's there and turn it into something much looser, much more understandable in English. I'll show you in Pantun how I move from four lines to free verse. And finally, there's what people call a deviant translation. Robert Lowell's book, Imitation, starts off as imitations, feeding on original source text and producing something completely new. So my first, he says, my first Sappho poems are new poems based on hers. So this is rewriting, reworking, producing new translation. Lowell says, I've got some Hugo in there and I've left half of it out. Malame, well, he's a bit difficult, he's a bit dense, not very good in English, so I did something else with him. And there's a lot more his critics really hate him for doing it. There are different ways of translating. And translation is basically a no-win game. One of the things that young translators need to be told is that you're never right. If you translate it this way, it should have been that way. If you translate it formal, it doesn't have literary interest. If you have literary interest, it's no longer accurate, faithful. Yeah? You can't basically win. So how does translation begin? You get the desire 
to translate. Or someone says, please translate. A publisher comes and says, please translate. An author says, please translate my book. And if it's a good book, you're happy to do it. Now I've talked about the publisher. The government says, we need six books of Malaysian literature for the Literature Festival at the end of the year. Please translate that. So it can come from all sorts of ways. Then what you need to do, this is all before you start translating. What you need to do is to establish a text. Translating, it's not as easy as it sounds. You can do it by walking into a bookshop and picking up the book and that's easy, or the publisher can give you a book and that's easy. But translating Sujaharu Malayu, there are 32 different manuscripts of Sujaharu Malayu. So first you have to get one that you're going to translate. Even contemporary, Sitor, Situmarang, short story, Fontenay or Roses, has in the original an extra page. And it's a very beautiful story in the original story about a man who lives in a village outside France, meets a young lady, she's diabetic and has tuberculosis. She dies, he's sad. End of the story. In the original, it goes on because there was another page in the magazine to fill in. So he joined the French Foreign Legion. He was so distressed. He got injured in Vietnam, 1954, Dien Bien Phu. And he comes back and he looks at her grave. And that's a story you could translate, or there are later versions which say, we don't need to fill in that page, so let's leave that out. Then you start translating. And the person, uh, there are three stages. Analysis of the original text. What is this text about? What's the language about? How am I going to transfer it? And then the process of transfer. And then the restructuring, the writing of the final text. I like very much the ideas of Robert Bly. This is Robert Bly. He's the leader of the men's movement, the Germain Greer of masculinity. He's a poet. And Robert Bly has eight stages. The first stage is you do a rough translation. And it can be dumpy, he says. It can be lumpy. It can be not very good target language. And then you deal with the uncertainties. Dear, is that he or she? This is a love poem. Is it he or she? Is it two he's? Is it two she's? You have to work out who's involved. If it's a Muslim text, what is happening with Muhammad in the cave? What is happening with those seven young men who live in the cave with their dog? What is the story of Abraham? So the second stage is dealing with the uncertainties. The third stage is rewriting into my English. Rewriting into correct English. Some people stop. They do the rough translation. That's it. 
That's all I'm getting paid for, three hours, so you do it. After that comes the style. Rewriting into English that you're comfortable with, the tone, the sound, making sure that the story is pitched to the right level, it's consistent. The sound, Robert Bly has a marvellous phrase, can I imagine anyone actually saying this? You write the translation and it looks brilliant. You've caught every nuance of every word. But nobody would ever possibly say that. So you have to go back and put it into shape. Then you check it. You check it preferably with someone who speaks the language you're translating from. Have I got this right? And then finally you finish. You post it and then you begin to discover all the mistakes as well. Never finished because you know as soon as it's published there are more things. Oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. But that's roughly the stages that I go through as a translator. So this is all general. Let's in the second half of this talk about something very specific unit of translation. How does one begin actually once one's done all the preparation, got approval to translate it, got an idea of what's going to be in the background, how does one start to translate? And I want to talk, don't worry about the language, of unit of translation. I want to suggest we begin translating in small blocks of words. And these are the words that belong together. The red bus. Orang, yang tinggi, itu, blah, blah, blah. Itu, Roma merah. There are two blocks. Itu, Roma merah. So we have to go through and we have to block out the groups of words which belong together. This is like surgery. If you get half of the words, the patient dies. You need the whole block of what you're translating. Begin with a simple text by Sitor, Sitor Manan. Ibu pergi ke surga. And rather than having a picture of Sitor, I have a picture of his Ibu instead. She's the one on the right. And Sitor is actually not in that frame, but he's on her hip and she's dancing. And this was a text, the short stories, you see copies over the back here, that Keith Fulcher, friend in Sydney, Brian Russell Roberts and I translated from Indonesian into English. And they wanted certain things in the translation. They wanted it to sound like an English short story. And this is a choice. This is called domestication, menjinakan. But you have a choice. You can make it sound like English or the language you're translating into and perfectly natural. And you have to take certain things out. You have to change certain things so as it's accessible. But they wanted it to be accessible. They wanted it to be a short story like a short story in English. So we were going for a natural, 
language, natural aesthetics. And here are the units of translation. Ibu, akhirnya meninggal setelah mengidap penyakit dada. Satu tahun saja. You can see these blocks. Badannya yang tua dan aus pada usia 65 tahun. Tak tahan lebih lama menolak ronggangan-ronggangan, kuman-kuman yang Maharaja Lela di paru-paru. Obat tak terbeli, makanan tak cukupi di kampung. This is fairly straightforward Indonesian and it's similar to the grammar of English, which helps. Mother finally died after suffering tuberculosis for barely a year. So in this prose one, the units are clear, the translation becomes clear because one doesn't have to change very much in moving between the different languages. This is a simple use. What about a pantun? Let's look. Here's a Malay fishing village, I assume, <laughs> in Singapore. So that's how old this photograph is. Pantun you know about four lines, A, B, A, B. First two lines setting up a picture. Second two lines drawing the meaning of the picture. And we have a pantun. Antonia. All of these by Hamilton. Dari mana hendak ke mana? Tinggallah rumput dari padi. Hari mana bulan mana akan kita berjumpa lagi? And the unit is the line now. When see you and where away? Grass is taller than the grain. When will a year and when the day that we two shall meet again? Sounds like rubby bands, eh? Or Lang Syne, when shall we meet again? And the language is very formal. When see you? and wear away. Grass is taller than the grain. When will the year and the day that we two shall meet again? But it fulfills the requirements of that second type of translation. It's close to the original, but it's accessible as part of our literature as well. It's not foreign. And the unit is the line. But the unit is not always the line. Let's think about it in Malay because the line often divides into banyak orang bergelang tangan, sahaya seorang bergelang kaki, banyak orang larang jangan, saya seorang turut hati. Okay, you can see that the lines divide into two. Sakit kaki titikam juruju. Juruju ada di dalam saya. Sakit hati memandang susu. Susu ada di dalam kebaya. Jahatlah. <laughs> okay. But once you start with a more complicated one like this, then there's another principle that's possible as well. And this comes from a man called Ramanujan. A.K. Ramanujan, who's a brilliant translator, brilliant theorist about translation. And he says in the next slide, 
My fidelity has been to the structure of the poems. This concern has led me away from translating every poem line by line. Rather, I've rendered a poem phrase by phrase, as each phrase articulates the total poem. So there are eight segments. And he says, forget about four-line verses. There are eight segments. I've paid special attention to the images and their placements. Sometimes I've made explicit typographic. So let's look at what you can do with they were. And next one. Yep. How about this? They wear bangles on their arms. I wear bracelets on my ankles. They say, mustn't do that. I do as I damn well please. Wow. That's fun, eh? And it's very striking. Is it a pantun? It starts off with a pantun. Let's look at the other one, the nakao. One. Ouch. Prick my foot on a thorn in the swamp. Ouch. Hurt my eyes watching her breasts bounce under her blouse. Okay. And sake. Kaki. Sakit, mata. Sakit is very strong. Sakit. And ouch maybe represents sakit. Prick my foot. Okay. So if we're dealing with segments, what about contemporary poetry? Oops, go back. Sapadi. Choko Dumono, this is a young Sapadi. He's very beautiful. And his most famous poem that probably many of you know, Aku Ingin Menchinta Imu Dengan Sedahana, Dengan Kata Yang Tak Sempat Diucapkan, Kayu Kepada Api Yang Menjadikannya Aku. Aku Ingin Menchinta Imu Dengan Sedahana, Dengan isyarat yang tak sempat disampaikan, awan kepada hujan yang menjadikannya tiada. And you can translate this into four lines, into three lines, three lines. The last line is very long. And again, if we follow Ramanujan's sense, wow, we can take the poem and rearrange it. We needed the slides because you have to see what you hear. Aku ingin mencinta ini dengan sederhana. Dengan kata in words yang tak sempat diucapkan in words unspoken. Kayu kepada api yang menjadikannya abu. And you can see how the second verse follows that exactly. Very clear. I want to love you simply. Beyond all sights and sounds. The way the clouds give themselves to the rain. Untuk menjadikannya tiada. Makes them not to exist. It makes them non-being, tiada is the opposite of ada. 
to disappear forever. And so the poem changes at that end. Let's do one more example. This is Sutaji Kalsum Bakri, a young Sutaji. Again. Meow. Kuching. Talamdara. Dia menderas lewat. Dia mengalir ngilu. Meow. Dia bergegas lewat dalam ayotaku. Dalam rimba darahku. Dia besar. Dia bukan harimau. Bukan singa. Bukan haina. Bukan lepar. Dia macam kucing. Bukan kucing. Tapi kucing. Nyaw. Dia lapar. Dia merambah rimba Afrika ku dengan cakanya. Dengan amuknya. Dia merang. Dia mengerang. Jangan beri daging. Dia tidak mau daging. Jesus, jangan beri roti. Dia tidak mau roti. Okay. That's the beginning of the poem. There's much more. No, oh, no we hang off on Hikachi Rama. But you can, you can see the units are so clear, not because they're written that way, it just flows. But you know the grammar. Dalamdara, diamandaras, subject, verb. You know the grammar, so you can arrange it that way. Let's just have the last slide, or the next slide then. What about Hikayat Sri Rama? I don't, it looks like this, and it's written as one continuous text. No full stops, no paragraphs, no chapters. It just goes. And if you want to translate it for an English readership, we're saying the purpose is to translate it for an English readership. So you can make no concessions, you can make some concessions. And full stops and paragraphs and chapters are probably a reasonable concession to make. But if you see the text in Romanized translation, ini hikaya yang terlalu indah indah dipekatakan orang di atas angin dan di bawah angin Nyata pada segala sastra perkataan Maharaja Rawana yang sepuluh kepala dan dua puluh tangannya. Raja itu terlalu besar. Ia beroleh kerajaannya empat tempat negeri dia nubuhkan Allah Ta'ala. Satu keraja. And it just goes on and on. And again, the question is, how do we divide it? We divide it into bigger units, but still units. This is a story. This is a chronicle. It's very beautiful. It's famous above the wind and below the wind. Stage two, where is above the wind, where is below the wind? It's where the, where the monsoons take you. And we get further and further down, and the further down we get, the more complicated it gets and the less obvious the meaning. Armin Sweeney talks about gobbledygook, and that's a whole separate subject. What do you do when it's gobbledygook? 
been copied, but copied badly. You don't know. Sometimes it's your fault, it's gobbledygook. I have to admit, all translators know this makes no sense. I shouldn't be translating this text at all. But you work. So I've tried to do two things. I've tried to show you the immensity of the process of translation. It's not just putting one word in place of another word. It's writing, it's rewriting, it's reading, it's researching, it's then changing. Changing the style, getting the tone right, getting the flow of the sentences right, getting it so as it's my language, getting it so as it's your language, the reader. We're doing it for the reader to take you into a different world. So we want it comprehensible, but we want it as far as possible to still be the original experience, which sounds a bit complicated, a bit contradictory. I've talked about units of understanding of translation, and I've said you start off with the smallest bit, here we are, forwards, and it has all sorts of implications. As soon as you're translating, you're looking at how it goes on the printed page, you're looking at what the grammar, you're looking at the whole culture, you're looking at the receiving reader as well. So it's not easy to be a translator. You need to be a critic. You need to be a good writer, craftsman, and you need to be able to analyze both sides of the equation, source and what they call the target. I say it's not easy. Other people have no problem with translation. It's easy process, I don't know what you're worried about. Translators should be invisible, the translators shouldn't put themselves forward. If it's good, it's because the original text is good. If it's bad, it's because the translator's bad. Lose, lose, again. It's not an easy work, but the rewards are great. Something didn't exist, and the translator gives it visible form. Enough? Thank you. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Ali Iskander. Um, I want to ask, uh, how do you personally um, handle translations that has, uh, works that has mixed languages? Like they purposely mix two languages in itself to form a certain voice to it. Yeah, depends who you're publishing for, I think. It's always a question I come back. If it's like my Selena, and it's got a lot of Malaysian English, it's got a lot of Malaysian items of reference, durian, papaya, food, and the audience is in Malaysia itself. This, this is something I learned. I thought I was translating from New York and London and Sydney and Melbourne. My translations were read in Southeast Asia. Those people understood the second language as well as the first. So that wasn't a problem. If, if you are doing it another way, you might want footnotes. 
or you might want things in bracket. It depends how long the second language is. It depends where you're publishing. <laughs> yep. Footnotes, brackets, sometimes just translate over it. It depends how important it is. But, but it's a real problem. It's a hassle. Hi, thank you so much for that wonderful um, lesson, as it were, in, in literary translations and its challenges. Um, my name is Sharad. I just want to ask you, in the age of Google Translate, and I know this is somewhat sacrilegious to suggest, but uh, because of the beauty and the diversity of languages and literary traditions, it's something we celebrate as a festival. Um, do you think you would regret the end of uh, translation effort? If we could just somehow you have a universal language and we could all understand each other perfectly except for Donald Trump. Sorry, I spent a night watching the impeachment process. Um, you know, do you think that we could gain something from Google Translate and the effort to kind of flatten linguistic differences? This is a real revolution, the Google Translate thing. I, I read a work in Spanish last month I have no Spanish at all, but I could feed it in 500 words at a time and it comes out. So you don't need me. I don't need a Spanish translator. Google in, Google out. Garbage in, garbage out as well. Languages that are close, we get a reasonable understanding of what's going on. If I try and read Vietnamese, which I do from time to time, it makes no sense. And I certainly wouldn't accept that as a reasonable translation. So I guess the second thing to say is that a human voice is always necessary. It's going to be different. Younger translators will be able to produce a translation much more easily without knowing all the intricacies of a language. But to produce something that's aesthetic that has a human touch, then it needs to be rewritten. We're in stages one of Robert Bly's eight stages. Any translation. But to make it aesthetic, pleasing, flowing, comprehensible, attractive, you human beings need to do it. Alhamdulillah. The machine hasn't quite taken over. Not yet. Hi, um, thank you so much for the for the presentation. It's beautiful. I'm also tra I'm a translator between Vietnamese and English, so I'm curious about your works and translating the Vietnamese author. Um, but relating to the presentation, I have two questions. Um, so first of all, it's the differences between working with authors who are still alive and working with authors or work of literature that are created as fable mythologies, as, a, as a Ramayana. Um, have you experienced these differences between working with authors who are still present and works that maybe the authorship is not very clear or authors who have already passed away? Yeah. Um, and the second question is relating to tone, actually. Um, when you translate from maybe more vernacular, when there are vernacular Malay or vernacular Bahasa being used, instead of this, um, because we all have this form of officiated um, uh, national language. How do you handle those situations okay. when you translate them into English, I mean? 
First question, working with living authors. I have two answers for everything because I'm a translator. <laughs> One's never enough. It's wonderful. You can go and ask them, what, what did you mean? What's, what's this about? Sometimes they know and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they can be very possessive and very critical. And the language you're working into is not their language. It might be languages they learned at school and they know the grammar very well, but the nuances and the subtleties they don't always know. With a dead author, you can do anything you like. Sorry. <laughs> you can't ask some questions, but the translation is going to stay. So that's, that's the way it is. Um, my Vietnamese translations, the author is dead, Pham Sui Ting. And he did a beautiful collection of folk tales. The second author that I worked with, she's alive. She did a beautiful collection of folk tales. And I found out halfway through, she plagiarized them from Pham Sui Kim. What do you do with that? I'll tell you what I did later on. But anyway, um, what do you do with slang? What do you do with dialect? It comes back to this. Maybe this is an answer that people give sometimes. A farmer, a Malay farmer, can sound like an American southern farmer. Yes or no? A salesman, a Chinese salesman, can sound like an English salesman. Yes or no? No. Group of young men, a gang, can sound like a gang of Malaysian youth. Yes? No. Generally, you say no because they're not American, they're not Italian, they're not this, they're not that. And so one gets rid of the dialect, gets rid of what's authentic about that gang speech in the original language. <laughs> That's fair enough because then the text can be read around the globe without distraction, but you've lost something. And it depends how important that something is. <laughs> Tiffany. <All right. laughs> um, yeah, so just to follow up on that, on that question um, that you just answered. Um, so you said that, you know, um, I guess getting feedback from the author when you're working with an author who's alive, because yep. um, I agree it's very difficult to get feedback from an author who's dead. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, so I mean, I, I know just from my experience, and this is a question, it's not a comment. Uh, from my experience working with authors who are alive, like Norman, who's sitting next to me, um, sometimes I learn quite a lot, even though um, maybe, you know, I'm more fluent in English or my, um, their English isn't perfect. Um, and, you know, the understanding of nuance is different. Um, I find myself taking a board, on board quite a lot of. Um, suggestions, um, and I just wanted to ask, because you've wor also worked with authors who are alive, if there have been situations like that for you where you've been able to um, correspond with the author on one of your translations and then they make a suggestion and you go, oh, that's actually really interesting, I, I can incorporate that. Have you, um, just want to hear about one of those experiences. Now, I've worked with Dorothea Rosa Herliani. If you look for one Indonesian author to read, 
the next 12 months, Dorothy Rosa Herliani. Her book is called, in English, Kill the Radio. Sebuah Radio Kumatikan. It just means I turned off the radio. It doesn't sound very exciting. But it was great working with Rosa because I could ask her at each step of the way, what does this mean? What are you trying to do here? What's it about? I worked with Sutaji, Miao. Sutaji's, I'm sorry to say, objectionable. He's so difficult. You don't understand. Of course you don't understand. No one understands my work. I'm a genius. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I just translate, I do as I damn well please. In one of the pantons, you say, okay, this is my translation. This is what it comes down to in the end. You are responsible. And we should have little signs. I am responsible for this translation. And what I intended to do was to use it as a basis for my own poetry. What I intended to do was to provide a text that second year university students can work with. We need these little caution signs and we don't get them when we publish normally. But if there could be dialogue, that would solve a whole lot of problems. Normally they can't. Normally. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Norman. I'm interested to ask about uh, your translation to Sitor Situmorang yep. because I'm also a Batak person. Uh, because uh, I know that Sitok, uh, Sitor is heavily influenced by French existentialism. And how do you inform yourself about his literary influences and um, uh, does this uh, like influence you the, the way the French literature been translated into English? Do you like borrow the language to to like to like in your translation? Thank I, you. I don't. I I work from Cito, and there are two volumes of Cito. One is a blue one, which I did with two other translators. And we call this collaborative translation. If I can translate, if I put a plug in, often we think one person does it locked away in their room. But three people can translate. And it can be one person who knows the language and someone who doesn't know the language. There are all sorts of ways of translating. Sito is taken to be very serious, existentialist, deeply philosophical author. And the blue book says yes. These are deeply philosophical, existentialist ones. The red book, Red Gerberus, it's not at all true. It's a man passing through the world, meeting women, moving on. Women are changed forever. A man doesn't change at all, he just keeps running. And they're fun stories. As an academic, I'm not allowed to say they're fun stories, but that's what they are. The other ones are deeply existential. And in that case, yes, you have to do the background work. You have to do the homework and read about existentialism or read about Islam, read about Malacca Kingdom in the 15th century, whatever. I've got a chapter in Perceptions, translation and slash as research. Translation is not just about putting the words down. It's about culture, and you need to know the culture that the original translation comes out of and the culture that you're going into. 
putting up uh, uh, performances of uh, Chinese uh, plays, but I have sort of uh, changed the plays and made them more multicultural. So the, the, the performers, instead of just speaking Mandarin or Hokkien, they will speak uh, different, different languages. And so in order for the audience to understand, I've been trying to uh, translate um, the dialogues and, and the songs. Uh, but because the movement of the plays go very fast, we actually cannot translate everything. And so we just translate the gist of the story. And also the performers are always improvising as they go along. But the audiences, some of them are complaining that, you know, they, they, are, they cannot follow the dialogue completely because we do not, you know, translate everything. So do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah. No, it's what you need to do to get the play across. It won't work otherwise. Um, this is question that young translators, new translators ask, can you do such and such? And the answer is always, siapa malarang? Who is forbidding you? You can do anything you want, more or less, and you're going to get criticized. So build a hard shell if you're going to be a translator. Because whatever you do, if you translate it, the songs and the story and the dialect, people will criticize. If you translate very literally, people will criticize. I've wanted to give a lecture, and I'm sorry if it was a bit formal, but a lecture which shows the complexity and, in a sense, the no-win situation as well. The complexity was the main aim, but I think no-win is a background text. And there's an English historian, a lady called Helen Waddell, and says one doesn't choose to be a translator any more than one chooses to be a poet. Bad luck, guys, you're stuck with it. <laughs> if you're a translator, you are a translator. The wind blows where it lists. The spirit blows where it lists. You call, it's a vocation. You do it, you do it the best you can. You do it the way that makes sense to you and you pull the blanket over your head. <laughs> After that, put up with the criticism. Ta-ta. Okay. Thanks, Rita. <laughs>